0: Welcome to Revelation Ancient Prophecy. This series is a detailed, in-depth study of the book of Revelation. You will discover just how relevant to our day the prophecies of Revelation really are. Here is your presenter, Pastor Baron Neustraten.
1: Well, good evening and uh, wonderful to have you here and uh, thank you for coming on board to study the book of Revelation. Um, I have entitled it Revelation, ancient prophecy, because the incredible truth of the book of Revelation is that it is written particularly for us who live in the last days. And we have recognized as a people that the last days are upon us. We're living in what the Bible refers to as the time of the end. And so that makes it a very interesting study. And I'm just quoting from uh, a writing which is really a testimony to ministers and uh, gospel workers. And this is what she said. Now please listen carefully. There is a need of much closer study of the word of God. Now I know this is written about perhaps 130, 140 years ago. But were she to be alive today, she would emphasize it even more stronger, I think. Especially should Daniel and Revelation have attention as never before. Now you understand and appreciate that the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation go hand in hand. They are the primary apocalyptic prophecies that the Bible presents. There's a space of seven centuries between them. And the essence is that these prophecies are the ultimate roadmaps, even for us today. And so there is no doubt about the urgency here. It is something that should have our attention as never before in the history, she says, of our work. Here's another statement which uh, comes from Testimonies to the Church, volume eight. The solemn messengers that have been given in that order in the book of Revelation are to occupy notice, the first place. I'll stress this the first place. they are to occupy the first place in the minds of God's people. Well, that's us, right? It is to occupy the first place in the mind of God's people. Nothing else, nothing else, is to be, mo- uh, be allowed to engross our attention. It should be preeminent in our studies, in our thinking and in our action and our duty and commission. Strong recommendations. Ancient prophecies. I love prophecies. Because I love history. You know why I love it? Because prophecy gives you the proof of inspiration. It cannot be denied that the Bible is an inspired writing. Because about one third of the Bible consists of prophecy. Not all predictive, And we'll come back to that. But what I'm trying to say is this. If you look for evidence that the bible is inspired you most certainly will find it overwhelmingly in the ancient prophecies particularly the ones that are what we call apocalyptic and so this is very important so let's let's look at what is a What is a prophet? Let's let's first define in general what a prophet is. Well, a prophet is an individual, is an individual who is claimed to have been contacted by the supernatural or the divine. And, you know, to us that is God. And to speak for them or to speak on behalf of God serving as an intermediary with humanity delivering the newfound knowledge from the supernatural entity to other people. So you might say a go between. Now ancient prophecies of course are the message, are the message that a prophet conveys because it's called then a prophecy. Now, If a prophecy is predictive, you have two types. You have a classical prophecy, which is short range, short term, and conditional. And an example of that would be when a prophet of God would speak to God's people and say, the Lord tells me to tell you to change your ways and to return to the Lord your God. If not, such and such will happen And then it happens. That is a classical, short-range, conditional prophecy. Now the other one are apocalyptic. Apocalyptic means revealing. They are prophecies that are actually long-range. And the interesting thing is, by and large, they are unconditional. That means it is going to happen. Now the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel are such prophecies. So it's very important that we study them. Now, besides the predictive prophecy, you have what we call exhortative prophecies. These are prophecies where the prophet speaks on behalf of God, admonishes the people, and exhorts them to come back to God. And if you look at most of the prophecies in the Bible, they are exhortative. And uh, there are a number of them that are classical, And then you have, like I said, the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, predominantly predictive, predictive. When you have a predictive prophecy, it must be specific. It must be clearly described what it is. It must have a chronology. A chronology means an order of event. It must be there. It must occur in the future. let's get this clear. It must be in the future. Because if it's in the past, you are an historian. If it's currently developing, you are a reporter. But you can only be a prophet, really, if you are projecting it into the future. So it has to be occurring in the future. It must be accurate. It's not acceptable that a prophecy, if it comes from God, would be 60%, 70%, 80% right. The prophecies that come from God are 100% right. That is the important thing. And so, they must be given beforehand. There is no question about it. And it must be verifiable by known history. What would be the point... If we study the prophecies, the ancient prophecies, uh, pertaining to things that should have happened in the past already, given before they happened, but we can't verify it by known history. And of course, we have a wonderful, a wonderful volume of evidence of known history. And we can look at these prophecies and verify them. Number seven, the time of the prophecy given should be known. If you look at the book of Daniel, it is exquisitely dated. We don't have to guess when Daniel gave his prophecies. And when it comes to the book of Revelation, it is absolutely nailed. The prophecy of the Book of Revelation would be round about 95 AD, and I'll give you the explanation for the certainty of that date somewhat later. Let's look at the location. Let's look at the location. Uh, The island of Patmos does attract some tourists because of the story of the book of Revelation. Uh, There is a church there and uh, uh, an uh, an orthodox church and uh, there is a bit of tourism there but not a great deal. It's not terribly big. Um, In fact, when you look at the size of the island, um, it, it is probably about 45 square, 45 square kilometers. I just want you to have a look at the map and i hope you can see that at the map so on the one hand as you fly towards it that is the view from the air and this is the map on the other side when you look where it is marked and i wish i could really locate it and you might just recognize the little red dot here that's the island of patmos this is the coast of turkey and this of course is greece so you can see that the island is very close to the Turkish border. For except, it is still Greece territory and under Greek uh, d- jurisdiction. And so that's the island, and it's only about 45 square kilometers. And the, it's part of a group, and the regional unit, the Kalymnos, that's what it's called, and the island group are the Dodecanese. Uh, these are just an insignificant collection of islands Uh, there's nothing much to report other than the fact that we do know that this is the spot where the prophecies were given and it's important that we we collaborate that with the book of Revelation have a look at this in the first chapter, verse 9 John says this I, John he identifies himself And there is no doubt about the author, by the way. There's no doubt about it. This was John, the disciple, the youngest. The only surviving apostle, by the way, at this stage. Now, he is their companion in tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, I was on the island that is called Patmos. There we have the location confirmed. Why? Well, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, here is the story. John was in Ephesus, and he was the leader. You could say he was a leader. Uh, He was the last surviving apostle, the one who knew Jesus personally. And so he was highly regarded and much beloved. Now, I'm going to show you in a minute... Uh, some of the Roman emperors, and the first one I will be showing you is Domitian. There was an emperor by the name of Domitian who wanted to be recognized as deity. And the way that that would be done is that you, as a good citizen of the Roman Empire, had to burn some incense in front of a magistra once a year, or whatever was nominated, And uh, if he did that, that was fine. But that was an act of worship. Now, already earlier in the first century, uh, there was another Roman emperor who wanted that. And he had difficulties with the Jews because they refused for the same reason that the Christians refused. uh, Because you are not to worship someone else. You only worship the Lord your God. And John was teaching this. And so he got into trouble with this current emperor. He appeared before the emperor. And the emperor condemned him to be boiled in oil. That's a terrible, terrible way of executing. And as this process was finding place, that is the execution, the testimony that John gave when he was in that cauldron was so convincing that the people who were responsible for the execution in fact pulled him out and he therefore survived this particular occasion but the emperor knowing that he uh, couldn't stop john from preaching and telling the people not to submit to this worship of himself decided he would do away with John where nobody would see him, hear him, and just finish him off and his ministry. And therefore, John was sent condemned to go to the island of Patmos, which was a penal colony. And some people reportedly say that there used to be salt mines, and it may well be that John was forced Forced labor to work in the salt mine. That is not really confirmed. By this time, he's an old man. He's in his eighties, and so there he is. The code to go to the island of Patmos. You must understand this: if you are bent to the island of Patmos, that is a one-way trip. You go there and you never come back. You were buried alive, if you like, and and the lifespan on that island was never terribly long terrible conditions and so no contact and this is very important no contact with the rest of the world deposit and as i showed you on the map it wasn't terribly far from the from the uh, turkish coast as you could see it's only about 100 and something miles very close to the beloved place of Ephesus, where John had his ministry. So in a way, it was close, but in another way, it was so far. He was, for all intents and purposes, silenced. Now, God had a different idea, though. So Domitian is the one, from 81 to 96 AD, he ruled. And he was succeeded in 96 AD by Nerva, who only ruled for some two years. But Nerva was not interested in this personal admiration, divinity business. And so, against all expectations, John, on the island of Patmos, having seen the visions of, as recorded in the book of Revelation, was set free and he went back to his beloved Ephesus, where he... Spent some further years. And we're not sure how old he really became. But he would have died some years later. What I'm trying to say is how remarkable it is. Satan tried to shut this man up. And his ministry. And yet God placed this man on a location. Where he would not be disturbed. And he could write visually. In every way. Report on the book of revelation, as you and I are going to study this. I think it's very remarkable. And so, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of St. John or John. No, no. It is really the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is important. Notice, which God, that's then God the Father, gave him, that is Jesus Christ, ...to show to his servants things, notice expression, which must shortly take place. I'll comment on that in a minute. He sent it and signified it by his angel to his servant John. So we have God the Father, we have God the Son, and we have... We have the angel, and in, you'll see of, the book that this is actually Gabriel, and it, the involvement of John, four entities involved in this particular prophecy, which is fascinating. Who bore witness of the word of God. Well, for three, three and a half years, for three and a half years, John worked with Jesus, walked with Jesus, Uh, Where Jesus slept, he slept. Where Jesus walked to, he walked to. Uh, There was a close relationship. There was a close relationship between them. A very close relationship. And so he heard the words that Jesus spoke. He He saw the tremendous miracles that Jesus performed. And he was a true witness to that. And to the testimony of Jesus. Whatever Jesus said. John heard it and he was very teachable for all things that he saw so it's what he saw before he was on the island of patmos and it is also of course true he is also a true witness of the things that he saw in vision and heard on the island of patmos which comprises of course the book of revelation and then there is this statement You know, Martin Luther, great man of God, didn't think it was terribly important, the book of Revelation. And there's a lot of Christians who believe that, who say, well, it's very hard to understand because there's so many strange symbols. And uh, why should we have to study that? Why uh, try to understand? How will it help us? Folks, if it wasn't important, it wouldn't be there. But it is inspired and the evidence is indigenous to the book of Revelation itself. God would not give it if it wasn't important. Can I remind you of the two opening statements that I made? from the books of ellen g white how important it is especially in our days to study this book vitally vitally important it says here blessed is he or she who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy now you got to understand this prophecy is the book of revelation That was not available to any congregation. Until John returned from Patmos to Ephesus. And then as tradition would have it. Someone would read it. Now I'm sure that what he wrote was passed on to the other churches. Of course it was. So someone would read it. And the Bible says. He who reads it is blessed. So he who reads it would read it in the church. Those who hear it. The recipients of the message, they would be blessed. They would be blessed. And the real blessing is in keeping, in keeping those things which are written in it. Now, so it's no good just reading it, hearing it. You got to keep it. The true value of the book of Revelation is when you follow its counsel, you've got to keep it. It's got to become a part of you, for the time is near. Now, seven times here in the book of Revelation, we are told that the time is near. And yet we know, and I already quoted you, that the book of Revelation was written no later than 95, early 96 A.D., So that's a long time ago. We we, we are approaching almost 2,000 years. So how can the Bible say the time is near? I just wanted to give a quick comment. When the angels convey that the time is near, or the book conveys that the time is near, this is an expression of the will and the plan of God. That is, if the church of the day would have fully complied with its commission, fully surrendered to that commission and executed that commission, then the world's history would have been cut short and Jesus would have returned. But a church cannot really expect the coming of Jesus if it's not faithful to its commission. And so there was an extension whilst the foreknowledge, knowing beforehand... Whilst the foreknowledge of God had it that the history of mankind would carry on, the original plan was really that if mankind, if the church, the followers of Christ, in their commission would have been absolutely faithful, he would have come earlier. Which gives a a particular message to us. Did you know that we as a people... We, as a people, are placed in a position, not just in a place of commission, not just in a place of trust, but we are placed in a position where, if we are faithful and we do what we were supposed to do, we could shorten the history of this planet because Jesus then could return. Very important principle. The time is near. If ever that was true, well, it's certainly true right now, isn't it? It's not a sealed book. The book of Revelation is not a sealed book. I've had people say, "Oh, we we don't have to." Now, well, if we didn't have to study it, if we didn't have to follow it, why is it written? So it is not. It is not a sealed book. Uh, it can be understood because there's a blessing in it. If you read it, you hear it and you keep it. So it can be understood. How can it be a blessing if you can't understand it? What we have to do in our studies, and this is what I propose, this is what I'm inviting you to. Let us look at Revelation. Let us take our time. Nothing else should be Occupy our mind more than this we are being told. Why don't we find out how we can unlock revelation, how we can be absolutely certain that what it says is exactly what it means particularly for us here and now today in 2020. And so the concept of the imminence or return of Jesus is in both explicit and implicit throughout the book coming to us. It is explicit and implicit. There is no question that this book, more than any other book in the Bible, holds before us the imminent coming, return of Jesus. And that is why it is so important. So, revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. I know it is. It is the revelation of about Jesus Christ. He is central. He is central to the whole book. It reveals in, his heavenly, in, the, in the heavenly sanctuary the work that he is doing after his ascension. We have a high priest in heaven. Which really makes the book of Revelation the fifth gospel. I quite like that. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke and John but then that doesn't finish that is not the finish of the ministry of Jesus no that is a tremendous time or as a ministry as a as a high priest our heavenly high priest where he works and intercedes on our behalf and so we got to understand that the work of salvation continued after his ascension revelation reveals his work reveals his work in the plan of redemption since that time, and this is 31 AD, when he returned to heaven. In the book of Revelation, all the books of the Old Testament, all the books really meet, they do. And in a very special sense, and this is very important, and the statement comes from Acts of the Apostles. In a very special sense, um, it is the complement of the book of Daniel, The two have to be studied together. She goes on to say, much of that which was sealed in the book of Daniel is unsealed in the book of Revelation and the two must be studied together. Now, recently we had a Sabbath school lesson. Uh, We we had that and we uh, had a quarter on the book of Daniel and that was last year. So I hope that much of it has been retained and it will be of tremendous assistance to you as we study the book of Revelation. Revelation, and I need to read this comment too, was to guide, was given to guide comfort and strengthen the church. Not only the church in the days of John, but also throughout the whole of the Christian era to the very close of time, which we know is the second coming of Jesus, his return. In apocalyptic prophecy, the symbols employed, the symbols employed, are almost always creatures never seen as such in actual life before. When you look at some of the depicting, you think to yourself, what on earth is this? And yet, everything has a meaning. Everything can be understood. And it's very explanatory when you study ...from the book of Revelation, from the whole of the Bible itself... ...the applications of those symbols. Such as the multi-headed beast, angels flying in heaven. I know it sounds like a strange book. But everything makes perfect sense once you understand it. The time periods rare in conventional prophecy... ...are generally given there in the literary years... So that is generally a literal time span. In Daniel and in Revelation, which is fascinating, time periods, as commentators all agree, repeatedly are used and, and usually are to be understood on the basis of the year-day principle. And once you apply that principle, everything fits. Historically, it just fits. So the book of Revelation, Revelation consists of four major divisions. I'm just giving you a little bit of uh, information in general. Uh, Four lines of prophecies dealing with the same era. There's the seven churches, there are the seven seals, there are the seven trumpets, and the closing event of the great controversy from the twelfth chapter onwards. The number seven the Hebrew mind, is a complete number. And I want to tell you now, this will greatly help you as we go through this book. Seven pertains to a fullness of time. Seven means all the time. Now that's significant. We have a seven-day week. We have a seventh-day Sabbath. When you keep the seventh-day Sabbath, you are saying to God, all the time, Belongs to you. Every day. And you express that conviction and believe in your special day with God. The seventh day Sabbath. Seven is a fullness of time. And so if you remember that. It will help you. It is to be divided perhaps the book of Revelation in a prologue. The letters to the seven churches, the throne of God and seven seals, tremendous scenes, uh, the judgments of God, the seven trumpets, the final conflict of the great controversy, because that is what it is—the book of Revelation. It is a great controversy book, and the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, and an enclosing, an epilogue, admonition, and an invitation. And I hope. That is one invitation that you will accept. The book of Revelation. What is it about? Well, the theme of the great controversy is central to the book of Revelation. There is no question about it. That is is the central theme. And it is between Christ and Satan. It really is between Christ and Satan. But you and I are involved... Whether we like it or not, we are involved. We are here. And we can't deny it. It is a battle of the mind. It truly is a battle of the mind. And so we've got to make up our mind, as we so often say. Which side are we going to be on? And that's a choice that every one of us will have to make. And I hope and pray that you make that choice, that you will keep on joining me as we go through the book of Revelation. If it wasn't a conviction that it is so important to you, why would I do it? I do it because it helped me tremendously. It strengthened my faith. And I look at the world, and I recognize the hands of God in my life, in the existence of this world. I look at all the, as it is so often called, the play and counterplay of all the nation and all the politics and all the world powers that I can see so clearly there's only one who is in control. And that is God. That is Jesus Christ, who earned the right to be in charge of this planet so magnificently there at Calvary. And if it's a blessing that he pronounces, why would we deny ourselves the blessing? Let's study this book. You will see in a moment a slide that will have, the, uh, that will have actually an, an email address. And I want to encourage you in this. The email address is ytareevent at gmail.com. If you have any questions, please ask. Whatever you want to know. And we will deal, every time that we have a presentation, we will deal with the questions. It is my desire that you have an understanding of the book of Revelation. Because in that book you find the providence, the love and the care of God so clearly demonstrated. I hope you'll join us and continue to do so. And may God bless you. Shall we bow our heads? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Revelation. Lord, I thank you for the people that are willing to study, willing to know more about your will and your way. And Lord, thank you for the evidence that will come through to us that magnificent evidence that shows so clearly that you are the God that is in control thank you for being our god thank you for the freedom in which we can study your word bless us and keep us in jesus precious name amen
0: You've been listening to Revelation Ancient Prophecy with Pastor Baron Neustraten, brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio. For more information on this series, visit
1: waitarachurch.org.au.
2: leave.
3: the yeah.
0: That was Blessed Assurance by Southern Raised. Before that, we heard Fountain View Academy sing Ancient Words. And coming up next, Eastward Music Camp will sing The Love of God.
3: Welcome to God's Favourite Shepherds, a collection of 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters, with many of the stories ending with a short quiz. Listen now to the author of God's Favourite Shepherds, Bill Ackland.
0: Today's story is entitled, Not a True Prophet, Prophesying Against His Will. The story is based on the books of Numbers, chapters 22 and 31 Deuteronomy chapter 23 Micah 6 2 Peter 2 and Revelation 2 My name is Shazu a prince of Moab I lived in the time when a people known as the children of Israel had come into the region of our country where our nation had settled hundreds of years before It was a frightening time for us This Israel had many amazing experiences on their way from Egypt, where they had been kept as slaves for over 200 years. Worse for us was the fact that they had inflicted a devastating defeat on the powerful Amorites, a nation whose territory was near ours. Our king, Balak, decided that something drastic had to be done to try to ensure that our army was not wiped out by the advancing Israel hordes. He had heard of a prophet of sorts who lived at Pithor, close to the great river Euphrates, but quite some distance from us. A deputation was sent to entice this man, Balaam, to use his powers to place a curse on Israel. King Balak thought this would stop Israel in their tracks and ensure our safety from this vast multitude. So we set off on our way to Pethor, taking with us many gifts that we were sure Balaam could not refuse. Then he would do what we had wanted him to do, curse Israel. About two weeks later, we arrived at Balaam's home. We told him why we were there. We could see that he desired the gifts we had brought him. Then after we had rested for the night, the first thing we said in the morning surprised us. No, shocked us. seemingly ignoring our costly gifts, he told us to go back to our king as, and I will quote his words, the Lord has not given me permission to go with you. King Balak's response was to send even higher rank princes with other officials to try to entice Balaam to do what he wanted him to do, promising him great honours and riches. To our surprise, Balaam decided to go with us. He told us he would speak only what God allowed him to say. We suspected that Balaam's God would not be happy that Balaam really wanted to go with us. We could see that he wanted our costly gifts, but still realized he could not curse Israel if God did not permit him to. On the way to our country, an inexplicable thing happened. Balaam's donkey, quite out of character, suddenly turned off the road and headed into a nearby field. This made Balaam very cross, so he struck the donkey several times, directing it back onto the road. Then an even more amazing thing happened. It appeared that the donkey saw a vision of an angel ahead, causing it to suddenly lean against a wall where the road became a narrow pathway and crushing Balaam's foot. This made Balaam extremely angry, so he beat the poor donkey very severely. Very soon, the donkey must have seen the angel again, for she fell down to the ground, dislodging her cantankerous master from his seat, resulting in another beating of this poor animal. Then something happened that had never happened before, as far as I am aware. The donkey spoke to Balaam in human language, protesting that he had beaten her three times. Balaam replied, seemingly ignoring the amazing fact that his donkey had actually spoken to him, saying that he had beaten her because she had made a fool of him and caused him great embarrassment. The donkey responded by saying that she had always obeyed her master and carried him wherever he wanted to go, and had never done anything like this before. To that, Balaam had to agree. It was then that Balaam saw the angel of the Lord, who reprimanded him severely for the way he had treated his innocent animal. He added that, if the donkey had not done what it had done, Balaam would already have been killed. This brought Balaam to his senses, So he acknowledged that he had sinned and asked permission to turn back to his home. The angel, however, had other plans for Balaam, so told him to go on his way with the entourage from Moab, but that Balaam would only be able to speak what the Lord told him to say. When the party finally arrived at Moab's chief city beside the Ammon River and appeared before Balak, the king told Balaam in no uncertain terms that he was unhappy that he had declined his offers of wealth the first time. Well, Balaam replied, I am here now, but don't forget that I cannot say anything I like. I can only say the words God puts into my mouth. Then commenced a series of attempts by King Balak to have Balaam to curse Israel. Several altars were built in different locations on the high country above where Israel was camped. Many animals were sacrificed, but this seemed to make no difference, for Balaam certainly did not curse Israel. He said things like, How can I curse the people God has not cursed? And I want to die as a righteous man would die. At another altar he said, God has told me to bless And who am I to countermand what God says? Even more frightening for us was his statement, The great God is with Israel, and shouts of praise are heard in his honour. At still another altar, Balaam's God put these words into his mouth, How lovely are the dwellings of all Israel, and The one who blesses you is blessed, but the one who curses you will be cursed." Between the sacrifices and the blessing on Israel, our King Balak was consumed with anger. He had wanted curses rained down on Israel, certainly not blessings. But Balaam wasn't finished. Yet another blessing was pronounced on Israel, even more wonderful and mysterious than before that we did not understand. He seemed to be looking far into the future when he said, I see him but not just yet. I behold him, but still far away. A star shall arise out of Jacob and a king shall come out of Israel. I cannot recall much else of what he said, but those last words are still ringing in my ears long after these strange events, even after Balaam himself was killed in a battle when Israel had overcome the Midianites. I have often pondered on why Balaam was not able to curse Israel, as we had enticed him to do. And how wonderful is Israel's God, who had done and is still doing more amazing things for them in the victories they have gained right throughout the land of Canaan. I cannot dismiss the thought that their God must have some grand purpose for his people, not just in the immediate future, but also in the time far distant. When a star shall arise out of Jacob, and a king shall come out of Israel, I, Shazu, shall think deeply on these things.
3: You've been listening to God's Favoured Shepherds, a book with 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters. If you have any comments or questions, or to obtain a copy of this book, give us a call within Australia on 02 or send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. We'd love to hear from you.
2: You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.